Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Well, by the summer of 1963, racial tensions in the United States had reached the boiling point. In fact, many people were fearful that a racial war was about to break out. Federal marshals were protecting black students who were trying to register at all-white universities in the South. Medgar Evers, a 37-year-old NAACP activist, was shot to death in front of his own family at his home by a racist assassin. Chief uh, Police Chief Bull Connors had unleashed fire hoses and fierce dogs on demonstrators down in Birmingham, Alabama. And in the midst of all this terrifying chaos, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. announced that there would be a march on Washington, D.C. Now, President Kennedy tried to dissuade him, saying it would just inflame racial tensions further. But Dr. King persisted, and around 250,000 marchers showed up, about a quarter of them, by the way, white, at the base of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington. And when it came time for Dr. King to speak, and there were tens of millions of Americans watching live on TV, he set aside the notes that he had prepared, and extemporaneously, he delivered one of the most stirring speeches of the 20th century, what we have come to know as the I Have a Dream speech. I'd like to read some excerpts from that speech to you, not only in celebration Uh, of Dr. King's life. This is MLK weekend, but also because it's an introduction to today's topic. We're going to be talking about faith, the faith that's required of anyone who wants to be a leader. So Dr. King said, now is the time to lift our nation from the quicksands of racial injustice to the solid rock of brotherhood. In the process of gaining our rightful place, we must not be guilty of wrongful deeds. Let us not seek to satisfy our thirst for freedom by drinking from the cup of bitterness and hatred. We must not allow our creative protests to degenerate into physical violence. Again and again, we must rise to the majestic heights of meeting physical force with soul force. I have a dream. Here's the I have a dream part. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream. This is our hope. This is the faith. Here's our faith word. This is the faith that I go back to the South with. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discord of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. And I say, wow, that is preaching. And it's a great introduction 
to one of the, uh, the crucial characteristics that's required of everyone who aspires to be a leader, faith. Faith. We're, we're in the third week of a five-part series called What It Takes to Lead. What It Takes to Lead. This uh, series is drawing leadership lessons from the life of Moses, one of the Bible's most stellar leaders. And we're, we're working our way through the first half of the Old Testament book of Exodus. So if you brought a Bible with you, would you turn with me to Exodus chapter 13. Exodus chapter 13, and you could take the outline from your program out as we go. If you aspire to be a leader, I hope you'll jot down what God says to you about faith today. This, this series recognizes the fact that many of us uh, perhaps most of us at some point in our lives will be given the opportunity to lead. You know, it may be a department at work, it may be a sports team, it may be just the leading of a family if we're a mom or a dad. It may be leadership at Christ Community Church as a community group leader or, or, or leading a class of children in kids' world or leading one of our GO team trips to Nicaragua or Haiti or Sierra Leone or, or whatever. So what does it take to lead? Uh, we're answering that question each week with a one-word characteristic. What does it take to lead? Week number one, calling. You need to have a sense that you've been called by God to this post. What does it take to lead? Week number two, it, it was uh, resilience. Resilience. And let me say, if... Again, if you aspire to leadership and you missed either of those two sermons, I would encourage you to go back online and, and listen to what you missed. Uh, today, the one word leadership characteristic is faith. Faith. And when I say faith, I'm not talking about first step faith. You know, the kind of faith that's necessary to begin a relationship with God. First step faith is when you surrender your life to Jesus Christ. And, and by faith, your sins are forgiven. And by faith, Christ comes to reside in your, in your life by his spirit. That's first step faith. If you've never put, put that sort of faith in Christ, never surrendered to him, I would encourage you to do it today, even before you leave one of our campuses. But, but today, we're not talking about first step faith. We're talking about growing Faith, the sort of faith that believes God every day to do something in you and through you and for you. You know, this is the, the sort of faith required of those who want to be good leaders. And so today we're, we're going to look at four ways to grow in leadership faith as illustrated by Moses. So here's the first step. I want to jot this down. How to grow in faith, leadership faith. Number one, welcome difficult situations. Welcome difficult situations. Now, let me bring you up to speed with respect to where we're at in the, the story. Okay. Moses has been called by God, that's leadership characteristic number one, calling, has been called by God to lead two million people out of 400 years of slavery in Egypt to the promised land. So he goes to Pharaoh of Egypt, the most powerful ruler in the world at the time, and he says, let God's people go, and Pharaoh says again and again and again, no, 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 no. And so Moses has to keep going back, and that's leadership character, characteristic number two, resilience. 
resilience until finally God inflicts the Egyptians with 10 plagues after which Pharaoh is, his resistance is broken and he's willing to say, okay, get the heck out of here. It's the Nicodemus translation of the Hebrew, get the heck out of here, okay? So this is where we pick up the story in, in chapter 13, drop down to verse 18. Uh, God's people are about to leave Egypt. They're on their way to the promised land. And the big question is, how will they know, know where to go? Okay, does, does Moses have Google Maps app on his phone? Uh, you know, they've never been out of Egypt before. What direction do they take? So verse 18, first half of the verse, Exodus 13, 18. So God led the people, so God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. Drop down to verse 21. By day, the Lord went ahead of them, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night, a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Drop down to chapter 14, first couple of verses. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi-Haharoth between Migdal and the sea. They're to encamp by the sea directly opposite Baal-Zephon. By the way, when you're reading Old Testament names like this and you're in your community group, the trick is just to to make up your mind you're going to read it like you know what you're saying. Okay, because nobody else knows how to pronounce these suckers either. <laughs> All right, just a, just a hint there. So the question is, who's giving the Israelites direction at this point in their lives? Who, who's telling them which way to go? God is. God is giving them direction. He's leading them every step of the way. But here's the strange thing about the route God is taking them. It's not the usual road that people would have taken back in 1400 B.C. if they wanted to get from Egypt up to Canaan, the promised land. Okay? Most people would take what was called back, back then the Via Maris. Via Maris means the way of the sea. And that's because it's a road that hugged the coastline of the Mediterranean Sea. So it was a flatter, smoother, more accessible route. But instead, God's taking them through the desert in an entirely different way. And he takes them to the, to the edge of the Red Sea. It's a dead end. It's a cul-de-sac. So on their east is this body of water, the Red Sea. To the north, we know from historians, there there were enemy camps. To the south, there was blazing desert. And to the west, well, in the west, that's where they they had just come from. That was Egypt. So so here they are in this this dead end. And when Pharaoh gets word that his ex-slaves, that his free labor is in a bind, he changes his mind about letting them go, and he sends his army to retrieve them. You know, Chuck Swindoll, who's an amazing Bible teacher, he's written a a book on the life of Moses. It's one of a couple of books that we're selling at our bookshop at Resource at our four campuses during this series. So if you want a good book on Moses, uh, either for personal reading or maybe as a community group curriculum, I would recommend Swindoll's book on, on, on Moses. He makes the point, their predicament wasn't an accident. It wasn't a wrong turn. It wasn't a miscalculation. God... God knew they needed the Red Sea experience to learn some things. Okay, so here's the first leadership lesson about faith that we can learn from Moses' predicament. Leaders welcome difficult situations because they have faith that God is ultimately behind these crises. 
You say, God, God is ultimately behind crises? What possible good could come of crises? Two significant benefits. Benefit number one, if you're a leader, is your growth. Okay, what benefit comes from difficult situations? Your growth. You ever heard the, the saying, what doesn't kill you, what? Makes you stronger. Whatever doesn't kill you, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. A year ago, Sue and I were, were hiking in the Tetons, and uh, on a couple of occasions, we came across grizzly bears. Frightening experience. So later on in the week at a t-shirt store, I, uh, I wanted to get this t-shirt because it had a grizzly bear on the front of it, and it had this saying, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, except bears, they will just kill you. <laughs> Yeah, seriously, though, a leader has to have faith that God will use difficult situations for their, their own growth. He's not out to kill you. He's, he's after your growth. Now, I don't mean by that that God is directly responsible for the bad things that happen to us, but he does allow them. He does allow them. So God didn't deliberately cause your sump pump to fail and your basement to flood. Okay, God didn't prompt your, your girlfriend to dump you and start dating your best buddy. God, God didn't afflict you w- with depression, if that's something you, you struggle with. God didn't cause your, your best customer to go uh, find business with your competitor. But God allows difficult situations like these in our lives, especially if you're a leader, for the sake of our growth. For the sake of our growth. You know, as we work through the book of Exodus... Uh, during this series, we're going to see Moses become a better and better and better leader. And it's the, it's the difficult situations that contribute to his progress as a leader. So leaders in faith welcome difficult situations. Leaders, if you're a leader, you ought to memorize James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. Jot that down. Write it out on a 3 by 5 card. Post it somewhere and review it until you know it by heart. James says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith, the testing of your faith produces perseverance. So let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Difficult situations, if welcomed in faith, will result in your growth. That's the first big benefit of these crises. The second big benefit is God's glory. God's glory. Go back to Exodus chapter 14. Drop down to verse 4. God tells Moses why he has led the two million Israelites into a dangerous cul-de-sac from which there is no escape. Verse 4, he says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself, God says. I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And so the Israelites did this. Now, it's obvious from this verse that God already knows what he's going to do. You know, it's obvious from this verse that that God has put the Israelites in this difficult situation so he can utterly defeat the Egyptian army and gain glory for himself. So when leaders find themselves in difficult situations, they have faith that God has not been caught by surprise. They have faith that God has a plan. 
You know, if you're a leader growing in faith today and you're in a difficult situation, you know, have faith that God's going to show up. God's going to do something that causes people to step back and say, what what an awesome God. Now, before Sue and I started Christ Community Church, I was the lead pastor of a small church out on the East Coast, and it was a difficult situation. I reported to a group of elders who were demeaning, controlling. Uh, They told me on one occasion, they said, we believe in servant leadership. You're the servant, we're the leaders, so you do what we tell you to do. How'd you like to work for a group of guys like that? I I could remember on on a couple of occasions coming home from an elder meeting, an evening elder meeting, and it's sort of embarrassing to admit this, but as I recap the meeting for Sue, you know, I would cry for the bullying that I had endured. One of the guys in the group, the chairman of of the group, he would take me out periodically to lunch and he would reach into his pocket and pull out a three-by-five card and he had the latest list of things he believed I had done wrong that he he wanted to go through for me. And top of the list one time, and I'm not making this up, top of the list, he said, this last week before your sermon, you prayed with your eyes open. I wanted to say, how did you know? Really? Come on. So you say, well, why would God allow that difficult situation in your life? Well, certainly for my growth, but also for God's glory. See, there there came a a time a couple years into this when I got a call from six couples living in St. Charles, Illinois, and they said, we want to start a church, wondering if you want to help us get going. And I said, yeah. Yeah. And God, God not only delivered me from that situation, but to his glory, I see what he's done over the last three decades at Christ Community Church. Countless people have witnessed his glory. So I don't know what difficult... I don't know what difficult situation you're in today, but do you have faith that God is up to something in your situation, that God will bring himself glory? Maybe he wants to gloriously deliver you from whatever you're you're under. Uh, On the other hand, maybe he wants to keep you put where you are, but to gloriously strengthen you and give you the ability to endure this toxic work environment or this troubled marriage or the losing team you're part of or the chronic health problem you face. See, leaders welcome difficult situations because they expect God to show up. He shows up for your growth and his glory. Number two. Okay, if you want to grow faith, if you want to cultivate faith in your life, don't count on others' support. Okay, don't count on others' support. Back to Exodus chapter 14. Uh, Pharaoh's army is now bearing down on the Israelites who have nowhere to go. We pick it up at verse 10. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. And then they said to Moses... Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? Oh, really? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. How would you like to lead this group? 
Huh? You know, one of, the, one of the challenges that leaders often run into is that even when they have optimistic faith in God, even when they have optimistic faith in God, they may not have a lot of company. They, they may be surrounded by, by pessimists. You may find yourself leading a group of glass-half-empty followers, of chronic complainers. I mean, the Israelites' fanciful rec- recollection of, of the good life they had enjoyed back in Egypt well, it was ridiculous. And by the way, this was going to become a pattern in their lives. Grumble, 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 grumble. Next week, it's going to be the focus of our leadership lesson. What do you do if you're a leader and you've got discontented followers? But, but today, I, I just want to point out that leaders who want to demonstrate faith should be prepared for the reality that their faith may be the only faith out there. So so don't expect others' support just because you have an optimistic outlook. Don't expect others' support just because you have a big confidence in God or you've got exciting plans for the future. Be prepared for the wet blanket crowd. This is Sanctity of Life weekend across our nation. And many churches like Christ Community Church are reminding their people that we serve a pro-life God. You know, King David said to God in Psalm 139, he said, You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully, I'm wonderfully made. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. So we believe unborn babies are God's creation and deserve our protection. Well, David Berit, David believed this strongly, and so back in 1998, he started a pro-life organization you know, to be an advocate for life and against abortion. And, and nine years later, in 2007, he'd reached the point where he was ready to give up, to throw in the towel. He was discouraged. It seemed like organizations such as Planned Parenthood, uh, big abortion providers, they were on the rise. Pro-life organizations like his were struggling and so he got together his little team of leaders, four of them all together. They got around a wooden table and he said, listen, we're going to pray for an hour. We're going to pray for an hour. Ask God what to do. Should we give up? And if God doesn't, you know, if God doesn't give us an idea what to do next, we're going to throw in the towel. So they prayed for an hour and at the end of the hour, they believed that God had given them an idea. It was a crazy idea. It was a faith-fueled idea. The, the idea was to go to their lo- local abortion clinic and pray outside for 40 days. For, for 40 days, hold a peaceful prayer vigil 24 hours a day. And they were excited about this plan. They believed God had given them this plan. So they went to their volunteers, expecting their volunteers to say, fantastic idea, let's go for it. And instead, what their followers said, pray Like, we want to do something, not pray. You know, where are we going to find the time to pray all day long outside an abortion clinic? We we got jobs. Where are we going to find enough people to cover 40 days worth of prayer? That would take a bazillion volunteers. Now, to the credit of this small group of four leaders, they did not let the wet blanket crowd rule the day. 
Even though they got no support from others, they said, well, we're going to follow through on this. Now, that was 11 years ago. Let me bring you up to, up to date in terms of what has happened. It's called the 40 Days for Life campaign. They held the first one 11 years ago. Since then, there have been 40 Days for Life campaigns in hundreds of cities around the world, on five continents. Just last fall, 269 cities around the world hosted 40 Days for Life campaigns. During that time, during the last 11 years, 15,235 babies have been saved. Documented cases, documented cases where moms decided against aborting their babies and decided to give life to their children instead. 99 abortion clinics have closed. Christ Community Church, last fall, we participated in a 40 Days for Life. We owned two days down at the Planned Parenthood in Aurora, which is the third largest abortion provider in the country. 400 abortions a month down in Aurora at that Planned Parenthood. And 181 people from Christ Community Church volunteered to take half-hour segments to pray. And as a result... You know, one of the things that's going on down there, we were on an empty lot across from the Planned Parenthood praying. That empty lot has been purchased by a pro-life clinic for women, and they're going to break ground, and we donated $75,000 to get it built. I think the campaign is working. <laughs> and by the way, if you're interested, if this... You know, you say, well, I'd like to know more about this. I'd, I'd like to weigh whether or not I, I personally could get involved. We have a lunch today. Okay, the lunch starts at 1245, runs 1245 to 2.45. Two-hour lunch. We provide the food. All you got to do is show up. It's at the St. Charles campus. So if you're listening right now at another campus or online, you're going to have to get in your car. Yeah, it's a cold day, but come on out at 1245 today. This is what faith does. Leaders who have faith persist even when their followers don't. Even when their followers don't. So if you're, if you're, if you're a, a leader in any arena, if you're a leader in your workplace, a leader in your home as a parent, a leader at school, if you're the leader of some worthy cause, if you're overseeing a sports team, if you're a leader in ministry at Christ Community Church, there will be times when you, when you step out in faith expecting a groundswell of support from others, but all you'll get from them will be blank stares or yawns or 101 reasons why this isn't going to work or chronic complaints or maybe even mutiny. If you're a mom or dad, you know about mutiny. Remember Moses and ask God to sustain your faith. Number three, do whatever God tells you to do. Okay, back to Exodus 14, one more time, pick up the story in verse 13. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid, stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Side note here. When Moses said you, you need only to be still, be, be still doesn't mean don't do anything. You know, sometimes we use it that way. Be still means you know, stop your activity. But, but Bible scholars tell us be still here means shut up. Okay, It means stop your, your whining, your belly aching. In verse 15, Continues, and the Lord said to Moses, Why are you, meaning 
the Israelites as a whole. Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch, stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them and I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army through his chariots and his horsemen. So God, God begins to give Moses some directives. He tells Moses what to do. In fact, what, what Moses is asked to do here, to stretch out his hand, his staff, over the Red Sea, it's mentioned four times in this passage. Someone has said that God won't steer a parked car. You ever heard that? You know, in other words, if, if leaders want to see God show up in a situation, then they need to swing into gear. They need to start moving. They need to do exactly what God has told them to do. And once a leader does what God tells him to do, then God shows up and God does some things. Now, let, let me tell you what God does in Moses' situation. Once Moses had done what God told him to do, stretch out his staff over the Red Sea. Once Moses did that, First thing God, God did is he deployed an angel on behalf of the Israelites. Now, when an angel shows up in this story, you know something's about to happen. Because the last time the angel showed up was the 10th the plague, the destroying angel who brought death to the firstborn of, of every Egyptian family. So, so when the text says, and I'm sort of summing up, what comes in the next verse is when the text says that God deployed an angel, you know Egypt is about to get clobbered. You know God's about to rescue his people. The next thing God does is he takes the pillar of cloud that's been leading them, that's at the, the front of the pack, and he moves it to the back of the pack so it's now blocking the view of the Egyptians. They can't attack throughout the course of the night. The next thing God does is he sends this, this wind that uh, blows apart the waters of the Red Sea and dries up the seabed so the Israelites eventually can walk through on dry ground. Side note here, you know, liberal Bible scholars who don't believe in miracles, they say, well, you know, that's not exactly how it happened. Here, here's how it happened. God actually led the Israelites to the north end of the Red Sea, and that was a marshy area with just six inches of water, and that's what they walked across. Now, I find that amusing because I think that's an even bigger miracle. If that's, that, that's the way it happened, then when the Egyptians followed in their chariots and their army and God drowned them, he drowned them in six inches of water. Pretty cool. You know, I prefer to believe the story that's recorded in Exodus 14, that God miraculously parted the waters of the Red Sea, that the Israelites passed through on dry ground, that the Egyptians began to give chase, that God caused their chariot wheels to get bogged down. These chariots that represented the Egyptians' power, they were a symbol of military power. They were powerless against God's power. And then God caused the Red Sea to swallow up Pharaoh's troops. So God did great things on Israel's behalf, but only after Moses, Israel's leader, whom God had told to stretch out his staff over the Red Sea, only he did what God told, after he did what God told him to do. You know, listen, those of you who want to be faith-filled leaders in your workplace, in your homes, in your schools, in your communities. 
God wants to do great things through you. But he won't show up big time until you do what he's asked you to do. This is a principle that's apparent in Bible story after Bible story. You know, God asked Noah, by faith, build an ark, only after which he destroyed the world and saved Noah's family. But first, Noah had to build the ark. God told Abraham, by faith, leave your homeland and go to a place that you've never been to before that I'm going to show you and make it into the promised land. You know, God told young David to go toe-to-toe with a giant. Just pick up some stones and arm your slingshot, Davy. And he did what God told him to do. God told Job, remember the guy whose life was just decimated? God said, I'm going to restore your life, but only after you pray for your friends and forgive them. So God told Job what to do in order for God to show up and restore Job's life. You know, God, the son, Jesus, told Peter to get out of the boat and walk on water. There was something Peter had to do. After these people did, by faith, what God asked them to do, God showed up in power. So what is God asking you to do? Now, this question assumes that you're listening to God. And listening to God assumes that you're you're daily spending time in God's word. And so again, I would encourage you, if you've not done so yet, please pick up a Bible-savvy reading schedule and read the Word every day. And keep a little journal. Purchase one of those journals and jot down a line or two of what God is speaking to your life, what He wants you to do, how He wants you to apply His Word to your life. You know, let's say that God... You know, you you want God to have your back as a leader in your workplace. You're in a leadership post at, at, at work. What is God asking you to do? You want God to show up, but what has he been asking you to do? Maybe it's to reconcile with some rebellious employee to sit down and work it out. And as soon as you do that, God's going to begin showing up. You you want to be a better leader as a mom or a dad in your home. Well, what is God asking you to do? Maybe he's, he's, he's been asking you to sit down and read the Bible once a day with your kids, around the dinner table or breakfast table, wherever. He's waiting you to, for you to do what he's asked you to do before he shows up in power. You know, whatever group you lead, find out what God wants you to do with that group and then do it and God will show up. You get it? Good. Now, as we bring things to a close, let me give you a bonus point here. For those of you who want to develop this, uh, this leadership characteristic of faith, the, the bon- bonus point is this. Celebrate who God is and what God's done. Okay, this is a regular activity in your life, to celebrate who God is and what God has done. I'm calling this a bonus point because we don't have time to develop it this morning. It covers the entire 15th chapter of Exodus. So, you know, what happens is Israel goes through the Red Sea on dry ground. The Egyptians try to follow. God destroys the Egyptian army. And when they get to the far side, the Israelites break out in song. That's chapter 15. If we had the time to look at it, we'd see that the whole song, the lyrics are full of descriptions of who God is and what God has done. You want to build your faith as a leader? How do you do that? 
You, you want to have more faith. What do you, you get up every morning, you look in the mirror and say, you can do it. You can do it. Is that how you do it? Or you start rehearsing all your good, positive qualities and you eliminate the negatives in, in your life. Is that how you, you build faith? Or you go out and you buy yourself a t-shirt that says, believe. Yeah. Wear it while you're working out at the gym. Believe. No. All of those methods that are so popular in our culture for jacking up your, your, your faith, they, they have something in common. The focus is on you. But you want to get the focus off of you. You want to get it on God. You don't want your, your, your confidence to be in yourself. You want it to be in your great and awesome God. And so you celebrate who God is and what God's done. That's what Exodus 15, the song in Exodus 15 is all about. I encourage you in the next 48 hours, sit down with Exodus 15, first half of the chapter, and circle every description, every attribute of God, who God is. You'll find God is my strength, God is my deliverer, God is my protector, God, God is majestic in, in power, he's majestic in holiness, he's incomparable. Circle all those descriptions of who God is. And then go back and read it a second time and circle every word that describes what God does. He parts the sea. He destroys the enemy. He reigns forever and ever. He guides his people. Who God is and what God has done to help you in this regard, we want to provide a leadership resource for you on your way out today across our four campuses. It is our A to Z list of the names and titles and attributes by which God goes in Scripture. 250 names, titles, attributes. I use it regularly in my quiet time with God. I'll take two or three items off of that list and I'll pray them back, uh, back to God just in praise of who he is and what he's done. You know, I've used it in my community group on occasion. You could use it with your community group and say, let's just do some praise praying today. Take this list and take something off of it and praise God for who he is and what he's done. Use it with your family. You know, this is why we gather every week. This is why it's so important to be in community with other Christ followers and being here in time to engage in the full worship of the body of Christ. A reminder of who God is and what he's done. Yeah, you could watch us on live stream, especially on really cold days like today, but I'll tell you what you miss. You miss the worship, and that's where the faith gets built as you're reminded who God is and what God's done. There's something very special. There's, there, 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 there's something magical about being you know, in concert with other believers, lifting him up in praise. Now, as we close Today, we're going to collect our gifts, our offerings, but let me pray with you before we do that. As we're bowed before God, and just as you have a quiet moment bowed in God's presence, I want to point out something in this passage that we looked at today that we, we didn't mention, but it's really the biggest thing of all. I didn't mention it because we're, we're just drawing leadership lessons for our own lives, but when you get to the New Testament, you know, the exodus, the parting of the Red Sea, the being delivered from bondage in Egypt, it, it all points to Jesus. 1,400 years later, a much greater leader arrives on the scene, God's son, Jesus Christ. And he delivers people not from slavery, 
to a foreign power, he delivers people from the power of sin and death and Satan and hell. And he does that when people surrender their lives to him because he took the penalty our sins deserve when he died upon the cross. When he died on the cross and he was raised from the dead, he split the waters of the Red Sea, friends, and he made a path for you to travel through on dry ground. And so we pause as we close today just in worship of Jesus, our Savior, our King, our Leader. If you don't know Jesus as such today, I encourage you right now in the quietness of your heart to surrender your life to him. If you've professed faith in Christ, but you've been a wanderer, if even this past week he wasn't much of a leader in your life, you didn't give him the the reins to lead, then once again humble yourself and say, oh Jesus, be my leader. Jesus, as we sing this last song in worship of you, I pray that you would refresh our hearts. I pray for every man, woman, young person who's listening right now, who's been called by you into some position of leadership. They're going to lead something. I pray that they would be faith-filled people, that they would take what's been learned today and apply it to their lives to become leaders who operate on the basis of faith, faith in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.